This past Sunday, as we gathered together live, we changed things up a little bit. Instead of our normal circle sort of patio furniture, we had set one long table to have dinner together. And we sat right down to wine and cheese and bread, catching up a bit on our weeks. And then we dove into the message I'll share with you now. You see, all November, we have been exploring stories from the Bible where God moves and the table was a significant part of the story. Today, we continue that by looking at the Last Supper. So to begin, let's take a breath and settle in together. This meal takes place during the final days of Jesus' life, which culminates in Jerusalem. It's a Passover meal, and there's some question about whether it is actually celebrating Passover or during Passover season, based especially on the fact that the Gospels don't mention the lamb or the goat that would be eaten. Nevertheless, we know it's Passover time, and that it's a time to celebrate the exodus of God's people from slavery into the desert, where they would be formed into a covenant people. Covenants are uniquely powerful promises where God, because of God's own character, commits to presence with a group. And God shapes them into a unique community with their own culture. In the Bible, covenants often mark something new for God's people. And then, the time after the covenant is made, we see the people shaped and defined by that covenant. We know who they are by what they do together from then on. Now, both at the first Passover— And at this one that we're coming to in the text today, the people were burdened. First, it was by slavery in Egypt. Now it's by the looming end of Jesus's life. And so they brought their burdens with them to the table. And so do we. Right now, even as you listen on a podcast, may I ask, what burdens are you carrying? Could you take a moment to name them aloud in the presence of God? Luke 22, verses 14 to 20 say, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And Jesus said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. N.T. Wright says of this passage, When Jesus wanted to give his followers, then and now, a way of understanding what was about to happen to him, he didn't teach them a theory. Theories about how Jesus' death dealt with our sins have come and gone throughout church history. Many of them are profoundly moving, drawing together deep spiritual insight, remarkable theological understanding, and a commitment to bring God's saving love to a needy world. Many of them have inspired Christian people with a new view of God's grace and mercy. Theories have their proper place, but they weren't the main thing that Jesus gave his followers. He gave them an act to perform. Specifically, he gave them a meal to share. It's a meal that speaks more volumes than any theory. The best way of finding out what it says 
is, of course, to do it, not to talk or write about it. Now I'm going to talk about it a bit more here. But remember that when we were together, we were around our table, halfway through between appetizers and the main course. For a while, I remember thinking that my familiar tradition of once-a-month communion had this value of sort of keeping everything special, that weekly wouldn't feel as important. I have to say, I question that now for two reasons I'd like to share. I question this whole keep it special thing now first because I started to poke at the difference between something being rote and something being a life-giving tradition. About three years ago, I traveled to Israel-Palestine for 10 days, and our group's main purpose was to better understand the history and conflict in the region, as well as the peacemaking efforts. We happened to be in Jerusalem on a Friday, which is the beginning of Shabbat for observant Jews. It's really neat to see the Western Wall as the beginning of Shabbat comes. There are groups praying at the Western Wall, the men on one side, the women on the other. The men are quite loud and often sing. The women are not actually allowed to sing, but there's a group that are being a little feisty and they're trying to make that happen. Then there's a protest group of men against that who blow whistles or even spit sometimes. Beyond that, there are prayers being offered both near the wall and in community groups that are reading scripture together. There's a buzz to the beginning of Shabbat at the Western Wall. And we had a rabbi who agreed to host our group for Shabbat dinner. And so after our time at the wall, we walked with him back to his home and got to have the whole evening resting and learning together. It was amazing to me because as an Orthodox Jew, his family celebrates Sabbath in a very detailed way. All the food is prepared well before sundown and then it's put on warming plates. Those plates are on timers that'll turn themselves off. All the light switches similarly are also on timers, and so he begged us to please not turn off the light switch in the bathroom if we needed to use it. Similarly, there's walking instead of vehicles, which will reduce the radius one might go during their Sabbath time. And as the rabbi described each of these details to us, he was delighted. Delighted with the invitation to so thoroughly rest every Shabbat. You know, I thought I would walk away from that experience, I'm embarrassed to say, with something like pity for all that rule keeping. And while I might not find that flipping a light switch feels like labor, the reality was that dinner refreshed my own practice of Sabbath. Sabbath is by far the most transforming Christian practice in my adult life. It's something I've practiced most of the last 10 years, and nothing has shaped me more, I don't think. And I got home from this trip and I found myself changing how I got ready for my own Sabbath. I planned more the night before. I used to let an errand or two, a chore or two, hang out into the next day. And I stopped. Got it done the night before. I did a little more cleaning so the house would be a little more restful. Because that makes my mind go to ease. I found myself restored in new ways because of these things too. One, that extra prep work didn't feel like work. It felt like getting ready for something exciting. And then two, the day itself was just richer because I was resting more deeply. Intentional traditions that are centered in love can be so incredibly life-giving. And so that's one reason I'm not so sure that celebrating communion less often really does keep it special. There's another reason I'm not as sure about this idea of keeping it special. What does it mean 
to eat in someone's memory? I was considering that question this week when an essay by a woman named Sarah Hauser caught my attention. It said on Thanksgiving Day and it struck me for how it got to the heart of that question. And I'd like to read an excerpt for us right now. The day is full of chaos and family, kids laughing and dinner cooking. Every once in a while, my mom steps out from her bedroom to check on things. We try not to ask her too many questions. Even though she's not physically helping much, the busyness of the day exhausts her. Everything exhausts her in those final months. But we want this meal to be just like the ones mom always made. We know full well she'll never make it again. We munch on baked brie and Texas caviar while the main dishes finish cooking and a few people watch football. The kids get sent outside for some fresh air and a chance to run around. My one sister serves a batch of gravy while my dad carves the turkey. We ask my mom last-minute questions and have her taste test what we've made so far. Dad wears the cow print apron my mom got as a gift at least 15 years before. He takes the carving knife from its case and transfers the turkey onto the oversized cutting board as mom peers over his shoulder, sneaking a bite and offering a last-minute nod of approval. The two of them hover over the food, a scene they repeated for nearly 47 years. We've set two large tables with seasonal tablecloths, wine glasses, silverware, and an array of home-cooked food. It feels odd celebrating together when my mom will likely not be there for that same meal next year. But it also feels like eating together is the only thing we know how to do. In the middle of the table sits a dish of cranberry sauce. It's the jellied store-bought kind, taken out of the can carefully enough to keep its shape. That's the way my grandma always did it. We can see the ridges of the can running in circles around the deep red sauce. She didn't bother to mash it up and make it appear the slightest bit homemade. Although maybe we've exaggerated her presentation over the years. We laugh, remembering the sheer delight Grandma brought to the table in her unique way. She was one of a kind, a soul that knew joy tasted better than anything else. She died years before, and we still miss her. And somehow this silly dish of cranberry sauce reminds us of her. We smile and laugh and tell the same stories about Grandma Anderson that we've told a hundred times before. This year, those stories feel more important, as if holding on to Grandma's memory gives us the courage to face the coming years when meals with my own mom would be a memory. Mom's terminal cancer is evident in the folds of her skin and her eyelids that droop in between bites. We remind her she doesn't have to sit at the table if she needs to rest. She nods, but stays there with us. We're all trying to hold on to this meal just a little longer. Grandma's cranberry sauce goes nearly untouched. We don't care that no one ate it, especially because we had another dish with a homemade version. It's still good for leftover turkey sandwiches anyway. But Grandma's ridges still in it cranberry sauce doesn't find its place at the table because we're all craving it. It's at the table because we wish Grandma was. We need her to still tell funny stories with us and watch her grin as she observes the bustle around her. What Sarah captures is the way that a meal is eaten in someone's memory. The way we tell stories, the same ones, over and over. The thing about being a Christian is we only have one book, one God, one meal. This is it. We've just got one story, but it's the best story. And we'll spend all our lives with it.
just it. We'll read the book, worship our God, eat the bread, drink the wine, tell this story over and over. And of course, Jesus's death is worth remembering, but I wonder if there's more to eating in Jesus's memory, more to remember. His character and miracles, his healings and teachings, the way he interacted with people. What happens if when we eat bread, Jesus's body given for us, we remember all Jesus did in that body? Yes, he offered that body to death so death would be conquered, and that's huge. But it's huge in part because of who he was before he died. And so let's have communion together. Let's eat a whole meal in Jesus' memory. Let's practice telling his stories the way Sarah tells her moms and her grandmas, like he's a real person, because he is. When we were together at this point, we began to think about two prompts. And the first is this. Remember that time when Jesus... And then we would share some of our favorite stories from the Bible about the things Jesus did and said and taught. The other prompt was, this one time I was in some sort of situation or experience. And Jesus did or said what he did. Comforted, provided, encouraged, gave joy. We told our stories. We told our stories of not quite having enough money and finding Jesus leading us forward to a place to live. I shared how Curtis was once deeply touched by the tenderness of Jesus through a mural. It was Jesus holding a lamb, but the mural itself was at my grandparents' retirement community, a facility that goes all the way from independent living to hospice. And there was something about the tenderness of Christ holding the elderly as a lamb nearer to his body that was very touching. We talked about Peter getting out of the boat losing his eyes to the raging waves and sinking and how it's a metaphor for our own lives a lot of the time. We talked about how it can feel like you cannot be yourself in church, especially if some part of your identity falls out of the accepted categories. We talked about how Jesus invites us to be ourselves. We told all these stories over bowls of homemade chicken soup and salad from our farmer's market box with warm bread and rich cheese and bottles of wine open, a whole meal in memory of our Jesus. 